0: Alexandria Schreich here, and welcome to Engage, a global energy show podcast where we chat with the pros in all things energy. We connect across the country and help people tell stories. And a huge welcome to our audience, and thank you so much for listening. So today, I have the honor and privilege of introducing our guest, Pierre-Olivier Pinot. So welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Sandria.
0: Pierre-Olivier will discuss his perspective on the Keystone XL cancellation, which I I think that you're really going to enjoy Uh, how Western Canada might garner support for oil and gas. And then of course, the future of Canadian energy. Uh, So, I mean, I have to ask right away, I think it's the most pressing question for our audience. Uh, What are your thoughts on the cancellation of the Keystone XL project? And then then maybe you can also comment on your, on your role at, I should say um, in energy sector management too, and that interplay.
1: Well, I was, I was actually surprised that Biden cancelled the Keystone XL. I thought he wouldn't bother coming back uh, on the permit that was provided by President Trump, uh, because I thought, you know, yes, there were debates in in the U.S., but uh, but you know, it it wasn't a big issue during the campaign, and most people, you know, didn't think about that. But it seems that the promise was made that um, that it would be cancelled, and Biden wanted to to. You know, please his base, um, and did cancel the presidential permit, and my my thoughts are really that you know, of course, it is hurting Alberta and uh, oil producers, and and in itself, it's a very bad decision for for Alberta first and foremost, and then for Canada. Uh, but then it's also the process. I mean, it, it shouldn't be pipeline shouldn't be decided by presidents or governors. And and we have in Michigan at this at, at, you know at the moment we, we speak, uh, there's the governor of Michigan that that wants to cancel uh, line five of Enbridge, uh, mostly out based out of uh, political perspective and not really the analysis of facts and and a regulatory process. So what concerns me. Uh, the most is the fact that there are political decisions that are being made on the energy sector without looking at the data and what it will actually mean toward, you know, on on climate change and energy consumption. And in the case of Keystone XL, it will basically block some uh, oil from Alberta, but it will do nothing for the oil consumption in the US because there are plenty of suppliers, you know, outside of the US that will just, you know, export to the Gulf Coast, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And and then, the you know, overall, the refineries will get their heavy oil uh, as they would have got from the Keystone XL. And this is really not a policy that we we should, you know, uh, applaud in terms of climate change because it's only a symptom and it's not really going to the root cause of our consumption and why producers want to produce and build the pipelines. Uh, and I think for climate change, we should really look at at the root causes of our consumption and not look at the symptoms like more pipelines or less pipelines, uh, oil production rising here and declining there. That's, these are the things that you know, people seem to relate a lot on, but it's not really, um, it's not really what's causing the oil production overall. So, you know, just to comment on on my role at HEC Montréal, which is a business school at Montreal, it's really in my chair of energy sector management. What you try to do is to explain these issues, uh, you know, from a, academic perspective, a neutral perspective, uh, try to raise the energy literacy of, of everyone, of governments, of businesses, of the population, and of course also to educate uh, students, uh, master's students, MBA students, uh, on, on the energy sector, just to make them more proficient when they go to work. And and of course, we do some academic uh, work uh, and, and publish on, on energy issues.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for that summary. And I guess... I always love hearing your perspective when you've presented, just because I think you offer such a unique take, like being kind of in the heart of Eastern Canada, uh, but then also having such a deep understanding of kind of Western Canadian or specifically oil and gas issues. And that's really invaluable. I always wonder what, of course, other people with different perspectives are thinking. And my perception is that your view is likely in contradiction to how Western Canada, I have that in quotes, perceives Eastern Canada to think uh, what, what do you think drives your view
1: well I'm you know I, I think I think we people should talk more and discuss more these issues and should acknowledge the fact that we are using oil uh, and in Eastern Canada Quebecers but also in Ontario and in the the Atlantic provinces uh, oil consumption is not declining we we do use a lot of oil when we look at how many cars and SUVs we're selling every year you know uh, you know there was a short break for for, with the pandemic but you know as soon as uh, June and July uh, in Quebec uh, the, the you know uh suvs uh were were out of uh, out of shops and then you know they, it was hard they were lining up people were lining up to buy their suvs after uh, you know stores were shut down for a few months so we need to reconcile the fact that we do use oil with the fact that we need to fight climate change and and you know, maybe it's because, you know, like everywhere we, we've seen too many Hollywood movies where there are the good ones and the bad ones. And, uh, and when and then we want to be, of course, you know, in the good one, you know, the, we want to be the good guys. And of course, we need some bad guys. And then the bad guys, we have we very quickly paint the, the oil producers at the bad guys um, because too many people see the world in black and white. And, and that's that's what we are trying to. well, I'm trying to to work against, um, just to say that you know there's not only an oil production uh, issue. There's an oil consumption issue, and we and basically if we if we think there's too much oil production, then the best thing to do is to shrink the market. If the market shrinks, then basically oil producers will go do something else. They'll do they'll go in other sectors. Now they see the forecast and they see the, the 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 oil consumption growing across the world. They see some opportunities and they say, well, if I'm not taking that opportunity, someone else will. So so basically what we should work hard on is to you know make the market shrink for oil. And that will basically lead investors to other sectors. And that's what we're not doing. So I'm actually upset about people who just want to find the bad guys and say, well, they're the bad guys. They are producing oil and they are building pipelines without realizing that, you know, their neighbors themselves or everyone around and the people they vote for just allow more SUVs on the roads, uh, don't invest in public transit, uh, don't want to have a, a, you know higher carbon taxes and fuel taxes. That's what we need to have. We need to actually be much more rigorous in how we consume oil and energy. In general, even electricity, even if it's renewable electricity, we need to be much more efficient in our, in our consumption. So this is the real fight. Uh, the fight is really on consumption. And then, then you know, the, the, the production issues we see will just shrink by themselves and will just vanish or because, because there, there'll be ultimately less production and less need for production.
0: Well, and I think what you describe from the producer perspective is just the fundamentals of game theory. Like, if I don't do it, someone else will, and that's very, perhaps, very oversimplistic. But I think these game theory has been around forever, and yet we we tend to politicize a lot of these conversations and decisions instead of being thoughtful.
1: Yeah, that's true. And there's something unique about North America that maybe we people don't understand enough is that it's the diversity of the oil and gas sector. But because sometimes when you think about the oil and gas sector, we think of, you know, the, the big five, the big integrated uh, oil companies, and we think about OPEC or uh, Russia, and, you know, they can control their consumption. And probably some people think that that's how it works, you know, in North America and across the world. But the truth is that there are so many producers, there are so many countries producing oil and within North America, so many companies drilling here and there that there's not one single decision maker. So what you're saying about Game Theory is totally it's true. So it's, true, it's really, you know, there's not, you know, we don't have uh, a king like in Saudi Arabia saying we need to reduce oil production here. You know, it doesn't work like this in, in, in Canada and the United States. So, so if someone doesn't, because we have a competitive market and we believe in competitive markets and that's a good thing. But, you know, I think in the, 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 you know, in, in, in the mind of people, many people, they probably think that the oil, con- oil industry is you know a single group integrated and uh, that they control and want to manipulate everyone to raise consumption and prices um, which is actually far from true of course there has been in the past some oligopolies in in the united states um, but now it's a very competitive environment that that you know is behaving according to the laws of uh, supply and demand and now demand is strong so supply is there
0: Well and I appreciate what you said about the diversity of Canadian producers and I mean I'm sure you're aware but we're seeing a crazy consolidation of all sorts of companies kind of glomming on together to stay afloat and I guess in your opinion how might Western Canadian uh, small oil and gas companies garner more support uh, from other provinces, what's your take?
1: So that's that's a very uh, key issue because we need to reconcile you know the different provinces and we need to recreate a dialogue across Canada on on energy because it's really broken. So so it's, it won't be easy uh, and I think Alberta and Saskatchewan, but especially especially Alberta uh, because that's the biggest uh, energy province in Canada, has to look at itself and look at well how are we doing in terms of consumption ourselves are we leading by example because you know it's a, it's one thing to say well we want to produce but if you produce and then overconsume and and are not efficient in your consumption then you know it doesn't seem right to produce so much if you're not you know uh, an efficient consumer and, and the sad truth is that when you look at the numbers and you know, energy consumption levels across the country, Alberta is number one. So Alberta is number one in terms of oil production and in terms of you know, a GDP per capita, uh, because it's a rich province, although of course during the last years it hasn't been going so well, but still overall it maintains a very good position. But in terms of energy consumption, Alberta is number one in every subsector. If you look at industry, that's fine. We understand that the industry, oil industry, requires a lot of energy to produce uh, the oil fence. But then transportation, then buildings, then agriculture, then uh, residential buildings, commercial buildings. In every subsector, Alberta is just Overconsuming you know beyond what Canadians are consuming by a factor or two by, by a factor of two or three beyond what the average Canadian is using in energy and that is can be explained relatively simply by the fact that Albertans you know are richer per capita and they have paid less taxes there's no energy taxes uh, there's no sales tax so that makes energy cheaper than in most provinces and and therefore you know there's a culture of over-consumption. And that hasn't been really addressed by, by you know, the general uh, policies in Alberta. So I would say, I would say, you know, Alberta should show more uh, efforts in 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 ensuring and leading by example, saying, look, we need oil, but we need oil because we n- need to consume. But then, you know, we need to consume not to the level we are consuming now. We need to reduce our consumption level. There are thousands of ways to reduce uh, energy consumption. And, and this is what is key again. And I think Alberta would, you know, if Alberta was in a way like Norway, and sometimes we compare Canada, Alberta, and even Quebec to Norway for different reasons. But Norway is actually, you know, among the Nordic countries leading in terms of energy efficiency. Uh, they can also make some progresses. But when we look at how much energy they use per capita, then they have the same climate as what the climate we have but they use much less energy and they tax much more energy. So they have a more uh, balanced fiscal uh, framework uh, so that they don't get all their government's revenue from the oil and gas, but also from sales tax, car taxes, uh, fuel taxes. And I think Alberta has to move towards a more balanced fiscal framework just to show by example and to be able to say to the rest of Canada, yes, okay, we've been having like, a free ride for some years and making a lot of money, but now we've understood that, you know, we cannot only base our uh, government funding on on, uh, royalties, because they're declining, regardless of the situation in Canada and regardless of pipelines, the oil prices went down and that was not because of Keystone. You know, oil prices went down because of overproduction around the world. Uh, And in 2014, prices just crashed. Um, And that wasn't because again, pipelines or uh, eastern canada or quebecers it was just the world prices so alberta has to you know rebrand itself as an energy leader but not only an energy leader in production but energy leader in consumption but in a good way leading by being the most efficient users of energy
0: well i think that that mantra you described is also a reflection, I think, of your values and that you often lead by example. At least that's what I've observed. Uh, I just want to riff off a couple of things that you mentioned. So I think just so I'm clear, you're saying that individuals in Alberta normalized for output still consume more. So, uh, for example, you're saying we're the leaders in emissions for agriculture. Is that normalized by product output or is that more of a function of our of our say our like our, um, our dairy and our cattle industry?
1: It it is by well, these, these numbers are per capita. But of course, there's a big uh, cattle industry in Alberta. So because Albertans like beef and they're, they're they're huge farms, then of course you know there will be more emissions in that sector than in mm-hmm. other uh, uh, agricultural sectors in other provinces. Um, but that's of course it's it's uh, it's a function of you know type of. Uh, of of activities there are in each subsectors, but uh, but it's also a matter of, of of standards and and how what are the norms and how are what are the habits of consumption, um, and and for for buildings for example when we when we arrive in Calgary for example we see there are a lot of uh, single detached houses and if you look at you know what you know how cities are built in. In in Quebec or even in Ontario, you have more um, apartment buildings, you have more uh, uh, attached uh, houses, and that is more energy efficient. And then you have the building codes uh, per square meter, basically, or square foot. You have a bigger energy consumption in Alberta than in other provinces. And these are just the numbers you can find on Natural Resources Canada or different places and, and there are different causes for that and reasons that explain that, but it's, you know, again, it's the, the kind of uh, regulatory framework and, and, and uh, standards that are applied in Alberta. It's the wealth of people, it's it's the habits, the consumption habits, it's the low taxes so that, you know, energy is cheaper. And in the end, it builds up and Alberta has a, a, a very high energy consumption that is not sustainable in itself. So, that's why, even for its own good, for just for the good management and, and just to keep more money within Alberta and then and, and for productive activities, because just burning natural gas or oil is not a productive activity. If you get, this, if you get the same output uh, by, learning, by burning less natural gas or oil, then you are actually more productive and you, you can use that money for other things. So it's really a matter of actually being richer. You use less energy to get richer, and we can do that all across Canada, but especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan, which are actually, you know, equal in terms of uh, high level of energy consumption.
0: Yeah, I, I think I know the exact data set you're looking at, and when you normalize across all sorts of sectors, I get there Alberta and Saskatchewan, from an individual perspective, consume significantly to heat homes, uh, as as well as for individual fuel. And I, I really liked what you said before about. How we have this kind of myriad of energy companies uh, that don't aren't aligned on the same mandate, and I think to comment on how you perceive areas for Alberta's improvement, you almost there's a heavy industry component to reduce our, our emissions, let's say per output of GDP, uh, but then also the individual side. So I mean that's a, it's not impossible, but it's an incredibly complex arena to try and get everyone on side to reduce emissions, especially when there isn't always a regulatory framework that incentivizes that. And just to pivot to your comment on Norway, I love that people quote Norway selectively. Like when they want to comment on how green Norway is, they tout their amazing electric vehicles. Uh, but then, of course, you're maybe person who wants to... F- poo-poo that idea, they comment on how it's funded by Norway's incredible oil wealth. And I I just think the selective uh, quoting of Norway is one of my favorite things to watch in, uh, in, in politics or in these types of discussions.
1: True, that's true. But, you know, in Norway, they tax a lot their uh, cars. So basically, if they sell a lot of EVs, it's because they they, they remove the, the sales tax on the EVs. But if you buy a regular car, then, you know, you pay basically twice the price of the car of, or the SUV because it's so heavily taxed. So, you know, the EVs are subsidized not because of the direct wealth from oil, but because they actually tax so heavily the other uh, vehicles that they appear cheaper to uh, to buyers so it's true they're rich but they also have good policies and they they may be rich and very rich because of these good policies not only because they have lots of oil
0: that's an excellent point and that money that they had earned from fossil fuels was invested and saved on behalf of the nation that aside I suppose, what might uh, these individual companies, you describe the heavy industry emissions, what can they do?
1: Well, it's like everyone. What can we do? We can lead, we can, we can try to, to, you know, improve our activities and then look for energy productivity gains in what we're doing. Um, we... We can also, you know, make sure that you know we the, the kind of discourse we want to hear. We can fund that and uh, and you know contribute to uh, industry associations that you know do some some public take some public positions um, to actually promote the interest of, of everyone of the, their their interest, but the interest of the society. Uh, and they need to realize also that the world is gradually shifting. You know we. No, even though I think we don't fight climate change as quickly and as as, as intensively as we should uh, we are increasingly working toward uh, you know, working against climate change so they should realize that yes the world is slowly shifting technologies are shifting electric cars are gaining uh, momentum uh, GM you know announced that they wouldn't produce um, internal combustion engine uh, after uh, uh, 2035 so things are evolving. So they should realize that, yes, there is a market now, but things are evolving. We need to improve to make sure that they they can produce as long as they can, but they can also think about the plan B and make sure overall the society is working well. But there are so, there are so many regulations that you actually ask for to gain this kind of social license that we've been mentioning a lot these last years. And to gain the social license, they need to be able to show that they're doing everything they can to reduce the environmental impact that they're supporting uh, a more efficient use of energy and in order to get that more efficient use of energy it has to go through prices you know I, we mentioned that well i mentioned that i i, I like uh, competitive markets and I think we should be in a competitive market, but in our markets at these points, you know, there are many externalities that, and then pollution is not priced correctly. So we need to put a price on pollution. We need to acknowledge the fact that pollution cannot be free. We cannot just throw our garbage away and think nature will take care of it. We have to manage that, and we haven't managed proactively uh, pollution, uh, you know, a, as much as we should have. So basically, that's you know, it's it's a hard it's a hard uh, ask, but they, they, that's what they need to Everyone needs to do that. And these companies, they need to do that uh, to, be, you know, to basically show they're good citizens.
0: Yes, and I, I think that what I asked of you was an impossible question. Like, Pierre Olivier, solve this entire energy, interprovincial energy issues in, a, in one statement. Uh, with that being said, I do have to poke the bear a little bit, and my understanding of the GM announcement was it's, it's not that they said they're going to hard stop all combustion vehicles by 2035. Instead, it was a statement of direction. So I would argue that they're aspirational as opposed to an actual hard um, like board uh, bonus outcome tied uh, directive. That's what, that's what I at least understood about their announcement.
1: Yeah, possibly, and and i didn't look into fine details, but in any case, you know, announcement that you know relate to something in 15 years or 14 years now, they, we should take them with a grain of salt because you know it's you know things can change, uh, and 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 so we'll, we'll see what happens. But whatever happens with GM, the truth is that you know the technology and batteries and prices are coming down, so there will be more EVs. Uh, and and that's that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Although you know, I would prefer people not to buy EVs because I would prefer people not to buy cars and just to rent or or uh, you know borrow cars or and and you know car sharing. I think is the future of car uh, and the future of, of our societies because we spend too much on on vehicles. Uh, but regardless of you know how we own these these vehicles, there there will be more EVs and that will be good and. With you know, even without climate change, there would be more EVs now because they're more efficient.
0: You're absolutely right. I just had to poke a hole because <laughs> I know that we have a good relationship. Uh, and I, I suppose too, I've seen a lot of local exploration and production companies have also aspirational announcements similar to GE. And I, I suppose what I, or sorry, GM would just love to see more. Positive media for companies that are trying to do to do right uh, in that in that space, and they just frankly don't get it. Regardless, uh, one of my favorite stories about you, or just I guess experiences getting to know you, is that like you said, you you practice what you preach, or you lead by example, and that you don't own a car, you didn't own a cell phone until the pandemic. Uh, often I'll hear, oh, that's easy for Pierre Olivier. He doesn't have children. I'm like, well, actually he does. Uh, and he's constantly outside. And you also have a very successful career at, I should say, as the chair of energy, energy sector management. Uh, and you're just so engaged in this dialogue, given that we're, especially now that we're chatting, um, you get a lot done with a very low carbon footprint. Why did you make this lifestyle decision or what, what's motivating you? And Was there someone in particular that got you on this path?
1: Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I did a master's thesis in in, uh, in philosophy and looking at rational decision making. So I actually think that rational decision making should lead the world. I, emotions are important, and I, I like the human aspect of everything, but I still think we need to take rational decisions. And you know, I, I also became vegetarian uh, in in 1994, I think. Before because it was I cool. Was reading <laughs> stuff about you know meat. Production And at first I was all oh, that's funny. But then I realized the efficiency of meat production. You grow cereals, you know, you, you grow wheat or corn or soy, and then it is transformed into beef. And then you, you get the beef and then you get the, the steak in your in your plate. And it is so inefficient as a value chain, you know, because you transform so many times uh, resources into less resources, into less resources, and it is polluting along the way. So it's good for the pleasure in the plate. And, you know, you have a good meal. But when you look at the overall supply chain, the impact is, is, is quite great. And then too often in my fridge, I was, you know, I got this, um, the, the, the ground beef that was, you know, that was actually a past you so I couldn't eat it and same thing for ham and I thought okay I'll, I'll I won't I don't want to manage my fridge and I'll go towards you know uh food that as actually is easier to manage because you don't have to worry so much about you know eating that in within the week uh and it's cheaper it's it's actually it's actually very good once you know how to cook and um so basically there were many arguments so it's not so much and I, I actually I, I love meat I, I think it's great it's I think it's good but it has a big environmental impact. It's more expensive um, and it's more management. So so I thought, no, you know, I I need to understand that there are these impacts and I'm not saying everyone should be vegetarian. I'm just saying that everyone should reduce its meat consumption because it has has too big of an impact on the environment and we're not paying again for the whole pollution that this, you know, this impact is creating. So, for that, for cars, same thing for cars. It's so expensive. It's the second. Um, it's uh, people, you know, household have record debt level now. You, know, they, they, they purchase houses and get big loans for that, and then the second sector where they go into debt is because of their cars. And that costs a lot. And then it's it's not worry free you know, you need to take maintain your car, you need to change tires, you need to change uh, fuel or, or oil, so many things. And I didn't want to bother for that. Um, so I thought, wait, when I need a car, I'll rent it. And when I don't, it, then I, it won't be in my driveway. So I don't need to think about my car. So it's really actually out of convenience for myself because there's now, it's so easy to rent. It's so easy to, uh, with the car sharing companies to actually get a car. So it's just better, and and you know, as you get older, sometimes with uh, with kids and and also you know, when you have a good salary, it's too easy to sit on your car and don't do enough sport because you're you know you, you're not too, you're just too busy to take the time to actually do sport. So I thought if I don't have a car, I will walk more because I will walk to work, I will walk to the bus stop, I will walk to uh, the car rental uh, location, and that actually keeps me active. So it's cheaper, keeps me active. Uh, As a lower environmental impact. So I think it's just all benefits. And the sad thing about, you know, car ownership is that people sometimes they say I need a car because I need to travel from A to B. But that's not the reason why people buy car. It's really because of, of, you know, social pressure, the image you need, some safety reasons that, you know, you feel safer in a car, which sometimes is totally true. But it's, it's you know, cars are not safer than buses or, or cycling. Um, so overall, you know, it's risk management. No one in terms of risk management would say you be in a car because that's safer. You know, from an overall perspective, it is not safer than other transportation mode. So from a rational perspective, car, car ownership is just, something that we should just go beyond Uh, and in the future of transportation many people see actually you know autonomous cars that will become shared and then you just call uh, you know when you need some pizza you call for pizza when you need in the future when you will need a car you will call you will call or just uh, you know use your cell phone to order a car and it will come and you will go and then that you're done with the car. Now we have to remember to be, to, to, to be aware that a car stays idle and parked 23 hours a day. So we are basically on average, we're using it one hour a day. That's a lot of money that is sitting in the drive day, the driveway of so many people. So it's not productive. So again, for the productivity of the society, we, we, it's irresponsible to put too, that much money, into driveways sitting there idle doing nothing just rusting and and uh, so it, so it's really because of my for my personal wellness I decided not to have cars not to own uh, not to eat meat and uh, cell phones I didn't need one but I got one because uh, it was easier to communicate with my kids <laughs> so so I decided okay I'll get a cell phone
0: well, thanks for sharing your perspective. And of course, living in a, it's minus 40 outside right now in Calgary, where I'm sitting. Maybe you can comment on the practicality within cold climates. And how would you suggest people live a low carbon lifestyle when it's this cold out?
1: Well, it, it is a challenge, especially since we don't have the, the habits of, of uh, having, you know, uh, a low energy footprint. Um, so, so you know, in terms of buildings, there's a lot to do in terms of uh, the thermal envelope of buildings. So, of course, we need heating now, but in the future, we should aim for much less heating because we would have like much more efficient houses and buildings in general. You know, there are now now there are norms towards you know passive houses where you basically have no active heating systems in these houses, and they are fit for cold climates. Uh, so it's not an issue of a cold climate you of course you need to design these buildings in a different way and when it's minus 40 you you may have some you know uh, minor heating for these periods of time but it's not minus 40 you know all winter long you know it's we have a few days a few hours of of coal and and um, so you can have these like electric heaters for you know the few hours or the few days during the winter for which you need additional heating Um, but that's so that's the first thing is 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 buildings, and of course, well, and then the second thing is uh, transportation. So we need to organize transportation in a way that we don't we can share more, and um, and of course with the pandemic, it's not, it wouldn't be very popular to do you know uh, uh, to share cars as much as we could. But you know the pandemic won't last forever, and even if you even during the pandemic, you know I'm using a car sharing company in Montreal. And that's fine, you know, you, you can sanitize the, everything in the car before you get in and, and then it's, it's safe. Uh, you wear your mask, you, you wear gloves if you want and you get the car and you do it. And, you know, uh, public health never said that you shouldn't go into these uh, car sharing cars because they're as safe as any car. So, so there are ways to get, go around. You can, uh, car sharing, car pooling, uh, these are the, this is the way to go. You know, when you look at the number of vehicles, you know, in driveways and on streets or a park, and you could cut half of these uh, vehicles, and if they were available with your cell phone, you know, you, you would look on a platform, like a Uber-type platform or Airbnb, and say, where's the car that I want to, to use? Um, and you would look where are available cars. There's one available, then you take it, and, and, you, and you, uh, off you go. Or you can use a Uber uh, and then, you know, the driver would come to you. So now there's so many ways not to own a car and that would really cut uh, emissions and energy consumption by a huge amount very quickly. Now for buildings, it you know, it takes, it will take longer, but, uh, you know, over 20 years, definitely we can have, you know, uh, buildings that are that have cut their energy consumption by 80%. Germany which is not as cold as Canada but is not a, you know is not a, a warm climate Germany aims at minus 80% in of energy consumption in buildings by 2050. So they give them the, the next 30 years to cut their energy consumption by 80% in buildings that can be done and that's what we should aim aim for. Uh, Because that's when we look at the world and and the evolution of climate and the evolution of energy consumption, that's what we should do. And that leaves plenty of room for producers to produce during the next 20 years, 30 years. But we should give them a clear perspective that energy consumption has to go down in Canada because we're doing the right things. And there will be plenty of jobs because, you know, if you work on on the construction and renovation sector, then, you know, if we actually aim at minus 80 percent of energy consumption in buildings, that will mean a lot, a lot of jobs for many people. So, you know, the energy transition can actually be very good for the economy. It's just, you know, shifting the focus out of production and waste and more towards a a circular economy where we actually invest in infrastructure that can be used and shared uh, for the benefit of all.
0: Well, and I think you hit it on the head with understanding the extreme amounts of energy that buildings, especially large industrial ones, use. And what unfortunate part of what you've said, though, is that talking about building refurbishment is not sexy politically, whereas lambasting oil and gas companies or uh, perhaps like lambasting climate change policy is so sexy and it's considered politicized and you get lots of rallying cries behind you when working with what you have in an efficient way is just doesn't capture the same headlines maybe with you and sometimes with sometimes with me but not, but not all the time. So I think you pay, painted a pretty interesting future for Canadian energy and Canadian buildings and ag. What is your vision for this Robust, affordable, low-emitting future. You mentioned Canadian oil, 20, 30 years. Uh, I mean, I of course cha- would challenge that. And then, how do hydrogen and lithium fit into this future that you envision? Canadian extractive sector, I should say.
1: Well, uh, hydrogen will be important, but I think it will remain in, you know, in a relatively small market. I mean, it's important for uh, heavy trucks, uh, freight. Freight transportation we will need hydrogen for that because we won't be able to use a diesel as much. And electricity is not fit for these. Uh, these the, the, mostly the logistics of uh, heavy trucks won't work with electricity because of the charging time, because of the power needed for um, to recharge. If you want, you know, uh, quick charging stations for heavy trucks, they would be so big that they wouldn't be manageable by uh, distribution companies. So uh, hydrogen will be needed for. Uh, freight transportation um, now of course lithium is is will be important for batteries um, but overall it's really it will be Renewable renewable energy uh, will be important. Electricity will be important, but we'll need to have re- renewable energy in, in in not transform into uh, into electricity because sometimes uh, you know uh, renewable natural gas or biofuels will be very important because we tend to think that the electric vehicles will replace all the the internal combustion engine vehicle. But the problem is that liquid fuels have so many qualities and are so convenient that will need some liquid fuels and will need some uh, natural gas and and, and we'll need renewable natural gas, we'll need renewable liquid fuels and so lots of these um, techniques and may, uh, are already mastered by the oil and gas industry. You know, they, have, they know how to handle these molecules. Uh, many oil companies invest in biofuel. So, so they, are already, they already are in biofuels. Sometimes they have, you know, uh, hydrogen pipelines. So we will need, you know, all the skills, many of the skills of the oil and gas industries will be needed in, in the low carbon future. So I'm actually optimistic for everyone because there will be opportunities for everyone now we need just to realize that there's a price to pay for all that change but the price to pay will come with a big price at the end it will be just less worries about the environment less flooding less uh, less extreme climate weather um, less less you know less droughts so there're so many rewards that will come with that that we should look at the rewards and of course our own quality of life will be better sometimes i'm using the image of quitting smoking now you know we i like the the, the, the main quote i like from george bush is we are addicted to oil you know george bush once said that we are addicted to oil and he was coming from a, he is coming from an oil producing state recognize our addiction to oil, but it's like tobacco, you know, people smoke, they have an addiction to tobacco. They never regret quitting smoking. I've never heard anyone saying, oh, I should go back smoking because it was so good. They save money. They are in better health and they just enjoy more their, their, their life. So it will be the same with when we'll get out of our oil addiction. We'll just have a better life, save on many things uh of course there's a cost to change but it's mostly a psychological cost it's the cost of changing our habits thinking do i need a big car big truck no i don't i can borrow one i can uh, rent one but I, I don't need to own one and you'll save a lot of money but you'll still have access to the truck uh, same thing for buildings you know we'll invest instead of investing you know twenty thousand dollars in a new kitchen we'll invest twenty thousand dollars in a new uh, thermal uh, insulation in a new uh, envelope for our house and as you said it is not sexy but you will never regret that because your your building your house will gain value you will lower your energy costs and that will you know, raise the, the the real estate value of your your house so it's it's really investing now in the future for ourselves and for for of course for our children
0: Well, yeah, thank you for sharing your perspective. I think uh, there's, of course, a myriad of alternative, I guess, timelines to what you have described. But I think that what you shared is yeah, your honest assessment of how you see the the future of our country. Uh, And I really, really appreciate it. It's been such an amazing pleasure to chat with you. Uh, Any any closing remarks that you wanted to add before we, we kick off?
1: Well, I think well, I just I, um, the only last remark, I say we should really ask our government and everyone to put more data outside, and not just the production data, but the consumption data, the energy data, so that people see facts about the the truth about energy across Canada and the gains we can make by doing the energy transition. So sometimes you know data are not sexy to to actually uh, display and show, but uh, now you know there are many people doing nice graphs, nice analysis. Uh, so we should raise the energy literacy of everyone and, and that's part of, so you know, you were asking what can company do, you know, put more data outside so that people understand better uh, their own sector and, and the energy sector. So that's very important because it's really through uh, learning that we actually, I think we will change and realize that all the benefits this change can bring to us. Thank you very much for having me, Alexandria.
0: Yes, of course. It was, again, such a pleasure to chat with you, and I could not agree more. I am such an advocate for understanding complicated data sets and then how you can essentially just argue with yourself about that exact same data set, which I do all the time. Uh, So, to our audience, a huge thank you for listening in uh, to this conversation with Pierre Olivier and myself. And thank you for listening to the Global Energy Show Engage podcast. You can check us out at globalenergyshow.com for information about our conference. And if you like today's show, please like and subscribe. Cheers.